You're listening to The Comedy Cellar, live from the table, on the Riotcast Network, riotcast.com. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to The Comedy Cellar Show here on Sirius XM Channel 99. My name is Noam Dwarman. I'm the owner of The Comedy Cellar. Uh, we're not in our regular location because True TV has kind of uh, evicted us from our table downstairs, but we're here upstairs at the podcast studio with... Uh, Dan Natterman, of course. This is we're in the studio. This is actually an apartment that Noam owns, and it's where some of our more famous comics go to the bathroom if need be. <laughs> yes, yes. Actually, we should get them to sign the bathroom, right? This is sign it, the it, wall. It's a, right up, right upstairs from the comedy. All, all the most famous names in comedy have made number two in this bathroom. All right, and uh, uh, Kristen Montella, uh, um, who's back? She's pregnant, and she's. Are you back on the show now? No, I just came <clears> because <throat> I saw that Erica was on the okay. agenda, and now. We are really, I'm really, really excited to have you on this show. Her name is Erica Komisar. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Yeah. Uh, is a psycho. Now, I got to tell you, Stephen writes these introductions, and usually they're they're bad. Okay. <laughs> is a psychoanalyst, parent guidance expert, and author of <clears throat> Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. That's basically enough. I, I can't, I can't, he, why can't his, um, <laughs> he sends it to be attacked. Why can't his text <laughs> messages parse into MMS automatically? Uh, By mistake, I, in preparation for this interview, I read the Jersey Kaczynski book uh, oh. being there. Oh. All right. So <laughs> now, first of all, just, are you a mom? I am. Okay. And Kristen's pregnant, as you can see. Yeah. I have, congratulations. Thank you. I have, uh, no, it's, uh, it's unwanted pregnancy. <laughs> <laughs> no. I have a, a, a five year old, a four year old, and a six month old baby. And uh, come closer to the mic. Okay. Yeah. And um, uh, my wife, this is, first of all, what I love about this is because I don't let my wife work. And now I have justification for it rather than just being a sexist. <laughs> no, we're, we're very lucky because <clears throat> my wife doesn't have to work. She's able to stay home right. with the children. And again and again, I say to myself, how could this not be the best thing for my children? How can you pay someone else to raise your kids. And I felt this so strongly that when I was speculating about, like, why are there so many uh, mass mass murders and everything? What's different? Like, we always had guns. I began to wonder, and I got someone really mad. I said, but I said it kind of uh, sarcastically, but it's like, could feminism be to blame for this? Could this movement, which liberated women to do whatever they want, have a huge collateral damage in children suffering upbringings which are not as good and not what they need compared to previous generations. So I'll start with that. Well, I would just, if I could... Can just... you start the guests? Uh, Jesus, Dan. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, she's not, a, she's not a researcher on mass murders, but I find that supposition a little bit... Uh... Well, it's, it's, it's a launching off point. Obviously, I'm not really saying that's the case, but, but clearly, if upbringing matters, then it got to manifest itself right. in some way. So how, does, how do we see So think? I'll address the feminism issue, which is why my book has been so controversial, really. Um, you know, feminism... I consider myself a feminist in that feminism was about choices, that women didn't have choices before, and they do have choices now. We don't all have the same choices. We don't all have the choice to work or not to work, particularly in a country that doesn't provide us with paid maternity leave. We're the only civilized nation that doesn't provide paid maternity leave, um, which really devalues mothering in that case. Um, but you know, feminism is about choices. So you have a choice to have children. You also have a choice not to have children. Um, and you also have a choice if you have to work about how you spend your time with your children. Um, and so, you know, feminism was about women's rights. Um, and obviously it's important 
that we have rights as women. But I think what got, what you'd say the pendulum swung too far, so what's now been overlooked are really the rights of children. So, And I would consider myself a child advocate, but I would also consider myself an advocate for mothers because you know I've never seen a mother in all the years I've been treating mothers and babies. I've never seen a mother who's happy whose child is not happy. A mother who's happy whose child is not happy. That's right. very interesting. Right. So it, I mean, I consider but of course myself an advocate the, for mothers. But you've seen the converse. That is happy children and miserable mothers. That we see a plenty of those. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, again, I, I think when children are happy and healthy, in the end, their mothers are happy and healthy. So I really consider myself an advocate for mothers and babies. Um, and, you know, we do have an incredible rise in postpartum depression. Um, it's 20%. One in five women suffer from postpartum depression. Those are only the ones that are diagnosed with it. Uh, many, many more should be diagnosed, meaning it probably is as high as 40% of women today have postpartum depression, which means that um, you know, they're not getting the kind of support they need. Um, they're often bored with their babies. So you know, we, we really have a problem in this country. Well, you want to say something, Kristen? I just want to say, can you talk about that a little bit? Like, yeah. I cannot understand the concept of being bored with your baby. Right. And it's, so can you yeah. just kind of talk about what how that manifests or what that looks like when someone comes to you and that's kind of what you're you're seeing? So you'd say every job has boring moments. Probably even being a comedian has boring moments. Every job has Watching boring them moments. Watching for sure, because yeah. <laughs> that's my job. <laughs> so, right. Every, every job has boring moments, and being a mother is, is very valuable work, incredibly valuable work. But it has boring moments. But if you have a pervasively bored feeling of being with your baby, you'd say it's quite unnatural. And, um, and it is a sign of postpartum depression, but not one that we identify in our culture as part of postpartum depression. We actually tell women it's okay to be bored, it's fine, it's normal, go back to work if you're bored. We don't actually tell them that with your own, with somebody else's baby, it's actually more natural to be bored. But with your own baby, not so natural. Um, and we're not providing those mothers with what they need to really mother. All right. Well, I have a few. First of all, this is Neil Brennan, uh, uh, co-creator of The Chappelle Show. I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> He's also... Uh, Three mics, three mics yeah, on, thank you, on Netflix. Thank you for correcting people and uh, updating uh, my resume for this me. This is thank he's a, he's a he has comes from a family of nine children, right, yeah. nine children. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, this is Erica Commissar who wrote, wrote a very very Hello. important book. Uh, we might have read about it in the papers, saying how important it, scientifically how important it is for mothers to be with their children for the first three years, as opposed to being out of the home. And so we haven't said what much. is the. Um, <clears throat> I, you may have covered this already. What's the basic premise? I know that's, but what is it? What happens in those first three years and what is neglecting it uh, resulting? It's a good question. So the first three years are what we call the critical window of brain development. By the end of the third year, 85% of the right brain or the social emotional brain, um, what we call the prefrontal cor cortex and the limbic system of the brain are developed. Um, so basically by the end of, three years, 85% of your social emotional brain is developed. And a mother's interaction with her baby in those years is really a very important part of the development of that part of the brain. Um, and so mothers do really two, they do a lot of things, but they, they perform two really critical functions for babies in that period of time. Um, one, they buffer children from stress from moment to moment. Um, and that buffering of children from stress after three years, is internalized by that baby as emotional security, which then that child can be more resilient to stress in the future. How do they buffer them? 
So every time a baby is in distress, a mother soothes that baby's distress, and um, then she is doing the other thing that I was going to say is the other critical function, which is emotional regulation. So every time a baby is in distress, a mother is bringing a baby's emotions back to what we call homeostasis, so, so they don't go too high and too low. And what we know now is that, um, you know, babies are much more neurologically fragile than we've ever understood before. That there are some scientists now who say that actually babies are born nine months too early, others that say 18 months too early from a neurological perspective, mm. that the only reason babies are born... Well, I know the answer are, to that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because the, 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 the vagina is too small to get the, the head out. That was the old theory. That was the old theory. And actually, that's been a little bit disproved. The new theory is that energetically, mothers could never carry a baby for another nine months or 18 months. The mother would die. It would kill the host, basically. That's a small price to pay for a baby. So, so she's, getting, you know, she's getting a lot of flack from feminists because, mm -hmm. because she's basically arguing that women shouldn't be out working in the first three years if they can avoid it. And you know, if, if I think about how People who don't want to accept global warming find a way to just discount any data. Um, what what you are putting forward is going to be very, very difficult for, on the left, for feminists to swallow, on the right, for people who don't want to have family leave uh, to swallow. And they're going to attack you and try to, and try to uh, accuse your data of being inaccurate and, and is that correct? Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, you're exactly correct. Um, is there anybody... Um, that that doesn't have an agenda uh, that's attacking you because they feel scientifically you're incorrect. That any scientists or researchers that feel that a Jamaican nanny is just as good. <laughs> so specifically so Jamaican nanny. Well, I live on the Upper East Side. That's what that's what. Yeah. Right. So I can yeah. honestly I can honestly say the research is not mine. I am a collector of research. So I've been collecting research for the last thirteen years, mm -hmm. and. Um, Basically, it's neuroscience, attachment, epigenetics, and psychoanalytic research. And it's basically research from the last 75 and years. And it all goes in one direction, more or less? It goes in one direction. So it's not my research. It's, it's research I've collected. Now, the 90s was something called the decade of the brain. So we have a lot of neuroscience research, but we also have a lot of very, very current neuroscience and epigenetics research that backs up everything that we've believed to be true over the years that I've seen in my practice which is that when mothers are absent from a child's life on a daily basis, from moment to moment, that child is not getting that emotional regulation and that buffering of stress, both of which at the end of that three-year period are internalized by that child. So one, the disorders that we're seeing in children and adolescents and young adults now are disorders and adults, because I can ask all of you, how many of you know people who are on any kind of antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication? We are, I know very, one right. very we are in the, so We was, are in the comedy world, you understand. Right. So this. you'd say, I would say 50% of our population is on some kind of psychopharmacological medication. Wow. And that means that we have a population of people that can't regulate their emotions. And so then Having you said say, that, yeah. you could, that's, it's that's because funny. they didn't really have, they weren't really prescribing stuff. <laughs> 40 years ago. It doesn't mean that it's right. gotten 50% more. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that's a necessarily a great so, example. So, well, you know. I do agree they, with well, you. Well, it, 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 it's cause for further inquiry. If you look yes. at the statistics, um, mm -hmm. there's been a rise in depression and anxiety. Yeah. Um, there's been a, in, in children and adolescents, so between the ages of 12 and 19, there's been a 400% increase in children prescribed medication, anti-anxiety yeah. and antidepressants um, since 1988. 
Well, you, are you a working mother? I am. And how do you sleep at night? I mean, <laughs> she, she gets a kid's so, so my kids are teenagers now. <laughs> Great. So one of the um, one of the things I advocate for in the book is that you can do everything in life. You just can't do it all at the same yeah. time. And I'm a good example of that because I started to write this book 13 years ago and thought about getting an agent and, you know, really felt compelled to do it because I was very concerned about what I was seeing. But then I put the book down because I knew that there would be a right time for it in my life. And at that point, my children were very young and it would distract me away from really being there for my children. So one of the messages and an important message in the book is that you can do everything in life. You just can't do it all at the same time. And that doesn't mean that women can't quote unquote work at all. Um, but it means prioritizing your children in those first three years. And that really then, then we get into a discussion of why don't we have a paid maternity leave in this country? Well, I can and tell you right now, Noam uh, would give thumbs down to that, to what? paid maternity leave. I have to pay? <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. That's why I say that Noam, Noam is a believer in, 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 the, uh, in the importance of, a mother being well, present, it, 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 but he is it, not a believer in the government telling no, him how to no. spend his money. I'll tell you what I'm not. A, yeah, I mean, if you want to get sidetracked, for, I, I'm I'm a believer that these worthy goals like uh, paid maternity leave or health care, whatever it is, I believe in them all, and I believe they should be funded by the entire taxpayer base. They should not be funded by one individual employer who who has the, the misfortune to have five mothers and this one has yeah. no mother. Yeah. But I'm all for as a very good spending of taxpayer money to help women stay home. You know, you know how strongly I believe this. I, well, I, I didn't mean, know that, but now I'm... No, I, I mean, know. how important I think a, a mother is. First of all, I see oh, other I know things. you believe that, yeah. Like, I, I think that... I, I discovered this. It's more to do with dads, but maybe it's with mothers too, that, you know, you'd think that, oh, you have a child, now you're automatically supposed to love it. But it really is not that easy. You have to spend the time with it. You do. And I see these dads who are not attached to their kids... And it's not because they're not good people. I, they're not with their kids like I am. Yeah. You know, they, they'd be attached to a puppy if they spend the time with a puppy. And I think that the fact that I see these moms, uh, you know, I, I, we have an au pair as well. And well, they got I hear a lot of stories. Thing. And there's a whole lot of moms and dads who only see their kids a few hours on the weekends. The au pair mm-hmm. puts them to school. They're at work. They come home. Maybe they get to say goodnight to them. And I say, how attached to their children like what kind of bond is there going both ways? This is a and so when I was joking about why do we have more serial killers now, I'm I'm only half kidding because if this is important, then we should be seeing some real problems from it. Wouldn't what it, do you do? You think that the problem would be solved by maternity leave? I mean, is that it? Because there is a, the three year. It's the all the the Sheryl Sandberg thing of like. It's that's not leaning in. I told you he was it, smart. It's the beginning. We have to have some kind of paid maternity leave. Uh, you know what I advocate for, knowing the reality of our country. You know, there's some countries that provide three years of paid maternity. Which leave. countries do? Eastern Slovenia and Eastern European countries provide three years of paid maternity leave. Finland provides 18 months. Um, Sweden provides a year, but Sweden has other problems because Sweden actually then forces children into daycare after a year. So we don't want to idealize Sweden. Do you think that women will have a hard time going with that? Because there is that thing of like, well, I'm either a bad... I think women face the, the choice now. I'm either a bad feminist or a bad mom. Part of the issue with feminism um, was that in the 60s, it 
basically Gloria Steinem came out and said that if you didn't go to work, you were a traitor to feminism. So there's a mm -hmm. lot of very yeah. conflicted young women That's what I mean, yeah. who actually have to be told. Another, I mean, there's so many reasons I wrote this book, but another reason I wrote the book was really to validate mothering as really important and valuable work because we basically devalued mothering. So young women feel so terribly conflicted mm -hmm. about mothering that they feel in some way that they're traitors to the cause of feminism. Yeah. Um, you know, again, if we really think about what feminism is, feminism is basically gave us choices. Mm. And you can't make the best choices for you or your children or your family unless you have all the information. Right. Well, like you said, so, the choice that they made is all the above. Right. And it's you can't do that. Right. You, a, a, you know I mean? a, I'm so, a, a small percentage of people and women have what I would call as, as uh, objectively rewarding work. Like you comedians mm -hmm. or me, I run a business, it's creative. Most people have these rote jobs where they go and punch a clock. Why would they want, why would women want to be doing that in the name of feminism? Because having a child, raising a child is intrinsically re naturally rewarding to a human being i mean it's 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 in our yeah. dna so you would think they'd way prefer that to going to i'd say eight out of ten jobs or just bull they probably w would prefer that well it, it, as long as there's no but stigma they can't admit it that's the problem is they, they it, who who goes first well not on the upper east side they can't admit it but i think in in, in most of america they they happily would admit it yeah the deplorable i mean the f i think the financial aspect is what weighs more heavily than the stigma personally i mean especially living in new york city you just it's not possible unless you're in a certain echelon financially to stay home for 3 years but you know what the irony is i believe this i don't know if it's true that as women went to work and it became normal that every family has two earners, expenses as supply meant rents just went up. Everything went up to cancel out the fact that families have more money now, and they're probably not living any better than they were when it was a single breadwinner. Yeah, that's in the probably house. true, but we're here now. Yeah, no, and, I'm saying it's, you it's, know, it's I like mean, if you if you could unwind it, then things in society would have to become well, cheaper to to allow so, for. It. So there are two. Oh, I just wanted to know if 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 in in a case where it was not a feasible for the woman to stay at home with the child. <laughs> what is the next best solution? Well, the next best solution is to have a single surrogate caregiver. Um, and that's also difficult to afford. And so what I recommend is, what I don't recommend member. is, yeah, I recommend a family member first. And then- And of family members, you would- Not your uncle. What, what, we, <laughs> Not call, your uncle, what we call kinship bonds, meeting a mother or a grandmother or an aunt. What's the best? Grandma. Some, the best. Some, grandma. Someone who has the, a similar investment in that child as you do and will be in that child for the rest of their lives. So, you know, there's researchers in my book, one in particular, who goes around the world and studies mothering um, in various countries and cultures, basically to see if mothering... Um, sensitive empathic mothering is culturally relative or whether it's universal. And what she's discovered is, no, in fact, it's universal. I believe that. Um, but what she's also discovered is that we've perverted the idea of what's called alloparenting. So sometimes people will come up with this, you know, well, in the rest of the world, there's, you know, multiple attachment figures. And the answer is yes, that's called alloparenting, where you have multiple attachment figures. But what they don't tell you, the whole story, is that we've perverted that system here. That multiple attachment figures means that the aunt and the grandmother and the next door neighbor you call aunt and the sisters, 
the baby, when the baby is not in distress, goes to those other caregivers. They are alternative attachment figures. But when the baby is in distress, the mother is still physically proximate to the baby. So the baby goes back to the mother when the baby's in distress. And that's how you grow the right brain, not by removing the baby from the mother's proximate presence, their physical presence. Nope. So, And what we've done is we've perverted it. So we now leave babies for, as you said, the Pew Charitable Trust did a research um, did some research on the fact that working parents in America spend um, 60 to 90 minutes a day with their children Ugh. under the age of one. So that means that you, you basically can't develop a child's emotional security, nor can you develop their right social-emotional brain spending 60 to 90 minutes a day with a newborn. No, your mother left... 60, 90 days when, when you're already exhausted anyway from working. Right, right. exactly. This is exactly. strictly anecdotal. But, Noam, your mother left the house at, at, at what age were you? Five. Oh, five. Okay, so you were already in the clear. Yeah, and she was home. There. Now, Neil, what if your mother is around, but she's got... <laughs> Terrible. A two-year-old, a three-year-old, a six-year-old, a nine-year-old. Uh, you know what I mean? That's with, his family. What about me? With a family me? of nine children. What about me? Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm the youngest of ten. Yeah. So, you know, the fact that it's nine months of pregnancy, you know, and usually mothers heal a little bit, even if we're talking about Irish twins and nine children mm -hmm. where mothers have them every yeah. 16 months. <laughs> yeah, every 16 yeah. months. Um, remember that child still has 16 months with their mother. Um, but having said that, what ends up happening is what that the mother- What 16 months are you talking about? Meaning, you know, however long it takes the mother to get pregnant, uh, gestate that baby and have the time in between before she gets pregnant again. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Um, but really what happens in very large families is the mother is still proximate, mm -hmm. sort of like alloparenting. Mm -hmm. And the sisters and the brothers, they, yeah. they, they, are, they become alloparenting uh, alternate attachment figures. So, so, yeah, so oftentimes siblings will help to raise, um, and that's what happens in other parts of the world, too. Siblings yeah. help to raise the baby, but when the baby's in distress, so when the baby's happy and playful and, yeah. you know, playful stimulation everybody is great for siblings. Yeah, yeah it's great. Yeah. But when the baby's in distress, that's when you're, re that's when you're doing the hard work of emotional regulation. Yeah. And so that's when the baby goes. So it's this sort of um, what Margaret Mahler, a very famous psychoanalyst, called emotional refueling, that mothers have to be uh, proximate to the baby for the baby to go back and forth to do this kind of emotional refueling. Can and when, yeah. No, I want to ask you, because I, I, we, we brought this up years ago. I've been very stubborn on something in my house, and I think that you're going to say I'm right. <laughs> I let, Which is why you're well, here. Well, basically what you're saying, I let my kid sleep in bed with us whenever they want to. And I had so many parents tell me, no, you have to let them cry it out and self-soothe. And I said, no, I'm not buying it. I, and I said, why would God give children this instinct to cry and us this strong instinct to want to soothe them if that was not the right thing to do? Right? How could that possibly be? They, they, we have all these instincts. That's exactly the wrong thing. Let them cry. But parents every day let their kids cry. Babies. So in other parts of the world, babies don't cry as much. That's what the studies show. Because why? Guess why? They're on welfare. Because they're, 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 they're on the teeth. <laughs> they're, they're, they're not they're separate. They're not separated. They're skin, what we call skin-to-skin -skin contact. Mothers carry yeah. babies on their bodies. And, you know, Jane Goodall just had a film that came well, she's out. She's with the apes, right? Well, Jane, yeah. 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 And she also <clears throat> commented on how chimpanzees, um, you know, the babies aren't in distress and don't really get into distress, really... Uh, heavy-duty distress states because the baby is on the mother's body, and when the baby's in distress, the baby need only to pull on the mother's hair or make a little squeak, and the mother comforts the baby. Wasn't wasn't she here at the cell recently, Jane Goodall? I saw a picture of Was her. Was she? 
I thought I, I thought that. Jared Freed, and it, I I thought it was somewhat ironic because she's into apes, and so Jared Freed, and her, you know, were, she, he took a picture with her. Really? Yeah. But she's got to be in her 80s now. She's quite old. I well, feel like we would have all heard about that. I, well, he, may he, he captioned the picture with Jane Goodall. Maybe he was kidding and it wasn't Jane Goodall. Maybe he was making fun of his ape-like Maybe his, his hairy back. We have, by the way, uh, <laughs> we have a, ta- a, a case study for you to, uh, to uh, decide on. Uh, this is not about mothers, but Noam yeah. has to leave the country to go to Russia with his band. Noam's a musician. I don't know if you knew that. And a fine one, by all accounts. At least that's what he says. And... Uh, <laughs> There's no way to prove it. <laughs> well, I'm not musician enough to judge, but right. Noam has to go to Russia with his band um, to play, and he does this every year, and Lord knows what goes on there. I mean, you know. I'm sorry, Jared Free with Jane Goodall. You were right then, yes. Jared Free with Jane Goodall. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Was that at the yeah. cellar? Yeah, she, she's grooming his hair, with yeah. her, <laughs> eating the insects out of his hair. So, so Noam <laughs> said just before the show, he said, I don't want to go. I want to stay home with my kids. And I said, well, then don't go. I, I I'm I'm gonna go. I ha- I kind of have to go, but I I get pain. But like why a, do you have to go? Because I gave my word I would go, and they're depending on me. But I I get pain like Who, a, your kids. I, You're right, Noam. You did <laughs> give them your word <laughs> that you would stay and be a good father. The the guy who who takes us to Russia it, it does a lot for me, and I and I can't let him down now. But we can't find another guitarist as good as you are. Right. One of the best, by the way. I I, I, I have to go. But having said that, it's painful for me to leave these kids. Now, my kids, my kids are very lucky, as I said, because Juanita, my wife's always home. They've never gone a day without us spending hours with them. Forget about it. We've, we've never left them. We, we don't even go out to dinner without them. Like these kids, you know, so they'll be fine without me for a week when the mom's home. But it's, but it's the dad who can't take it. I think I'm not worried about the kids. I can't take what it. What about the presence of the father? Noam's in a lucky situation. Noam, he makes it, I don't know if you've been to the comedy side before, the place is, there's never an empty seat. So the man makes, you know, he's comfortable. Let's, let's put it that way. <laughs> he doesn't need to be, he can be at home all the time. Do you feel that, with, I know you wrote a book about mothers, <laughs> but is the presence of the father, if he can do it, if he's blessed mm-hmm. like Noam is, uh, how important would that be? So there's a lot in the book about fathers and forefathers. I actually encourage fathers to read the book. Um, one, to support mothers, and also to understand how they can contribute um, by being more sensitive and empathic as well. So, um, you know, fathers' presence is important for different reasons than mothers' presence. And that's a very controversial thing to say in our society because we, w- we just want to believe that there's no difference between men and women, um, that they're almost interchangeable like socks, you know, in the dryer kind of thing. Um, and what the research shows is they're not. They actually do very important things for children's development, but different things. Um, and so when mothers nurture um, and fathers, they both produce something in their brains called oxytocin. Oxytocin is like a love hormone. Mm-hmm. It's a neuropeptide produced in the brain when we nurture. Actually, in women, it's produced when you give birth, when you breastfeed, breastfeed. and when you and nurture. When you, and also when, when you, you have nurture. sex. Yeah. That's why, yeah. You, that's when why you afterwards. Love, when you're intimate, yeah. And men produce it, too, when they nurture. But when men produce it, it comes from a different part of their brain than when women produce it. And it has a different effect on fathers than mothers. Um, When mothers produce it in big quantities, first of all, when a mother produces oxytocin in her brain, because she's um, three things, has skin-to-skin contact with the baby, is making eye contact, and is vocalizing with the baby. Um, Those are the three cues, the three nonverbal cues for oxytocin. 
when the mother produces it, the baby produces it too in great quantities. Um, but when a mother produces it, she becomes more of what we call a sensitive empathic nurturer. So if a baby is in distress, distress, she leans into the distress and soothes the distress. Right. <laughs> exactly. I'm leaning into and, my mic for those and, at home. Right. <laughs> and, and, um, and when a father produces it, he becomes more playfully stimulating, um, encouraging distraction, encouraging exploration, encouraging resilience. So we say, you know, that's a very important part of separation, but that really becomes more important as a child gets older. Having said that, um, you know, that's what they induce in the child. So in a, in a father, when he produces oxytocin, he throws the baby up in the air higher, tickles the baby greater. So fathers with this playful stimulation actually encourage things like exploring the world, separating from the mother for short periods of time to do that refueling. Um, you know, it's a very important function. And fathers do another thing that's really important, which is that they help regulate children's aggression, particularly little boys' aggression. So what the studies now show is that when that mothers regulate fear, distress, sadness, but fathers regulate aggression. So when yeah. fathers aren't present enough, what we're seeing with fathers not being present enough is an increase in very early signs of aggression in children. More children having trouble in school with aggression and hitting. And um, so, yeah, so fathers are really important too. Men, They're just not yes. exactly the it's same as women. It's testosterone. I've been thinking about this a lot lately with Louie and everybody. Um, men, most, a lot of men, men do riskier things. Mm -hmm. Like we, testosterone induces risky behavior. That's been hugely constructive for the world. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, I'm going to tell you something, little known fact. As Go. oxytocin goes up, so oxytocin has Testosterone a, goes down. Yep. Has an inverse relationship with testosterone. Yes. So when fathers stay home and they nurture, they're much less aggressive. Yes. So we do want to encourage fathers to be more involved with their children. Um, you know, we want to encourage men to be more involved intimately with their with their wives and girlfriends and, and husbands and whatever your sexual orientation. But why Intimacy do we need testosterone? Intimacy is good for society. Agreed. But why do we need to lower testosterone? I mean, that's what happens naturally, but I'm just saying, like, why would you encourage that? So, again, I'm not encouraging it. I'm just Let suggesting... Let Noam go to Russia. I'm just suggesting... <laughs> I'm, su I'm suggesting that... Um, I'm suggesting that, that some aspect of sensitivity and sensitive empathic nurturing is good for everyone to learn. Having said that, you know, men and women really evolutionarily have performed different functions for children's development. So if we're going to change this up after thousands and thousands of years, and we're going to change it up fast, we have to understand that there's going to be some major consequences and repercussions People don't like if that. we don't, don't slow like it down. I know. Well, they don't I mean, want to hear about it. Aren't you describing really the heart of the matter on basically all our social problems that people are constantly trying to get a handle on with government programs? And I'm not railing as government programs, but whether it's how they do in school or, or aggression or, or anything you name, it's no match for bad rearing. Like my kid, like my kids, we go, we have a really good public school in Artsley, really, really good. However, when my children get home, mommy and daddy are there. We're there to do their homework with them yeah. and all of it. And if we weren't there, they would be doing terribly in school. And then we blame the schools. It has nothing to do with the schools. Yeah, it has nothing to do with, they could, I think my kids could, I think the one thing the schools fail at is not academics, it's uh, giving the proper environment so children can just relax and learn. And right. you think like Abraham Lincoln, 
And that whole generation, they were raised in one-room schoolhouses. They had no whiteboard and computers. And they read and they wrote and they had great math. I mean, they did everything that we want our kids to they do. They all became Abraham Lincoln. No, but <laughs> look at the you look, look at the Civil War letters. I mean, the, the there was no there was no problem in the education of that generation. Well, those are the letters that have, that that we tend to focus they, on. I don't know that that's my father's generation. Before there was any computers, any television, anything, when they had 40 kids in their class, the only difference was the environment was wholesome and the home was different. The schools, the te- technology does not matter to learn. Yeah, no, but the murder rate was higher in, the, in 1977 than it is now. Well, because we incarcerate so many people now. Or there's less attempted murders. Well, what what we do understand is that well, there's an increase in aggression in young children and adolescents and young adults. And what we understand about aggression is that it's induced in a part of the brain. It's a defensive response. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as I said, the brain is a much, babies are more neurologically fragile than we've understood. And so when they're exposed to stress, which is too early separation or fear, which is what early, early separation does for children. So they've done salivary tests on children who've been separated from their mothers too early or put into daycare too early. And what what happens is there's a ton of cortisol in their bodies. Mm -hmm. Um, And cortisol, we know, is not a good thing. Mm -hmm. Stress hormones are basically not good things. You know, short term, they're okay. When you get up as a comedian and you perform, yeah. Um, there's stress hormones yeah. rolling yeah. through your brain and your They're body. They're cousins with adrenaline and, anyway. Yeah, but acutely. It's okay. Yeah. Acutely. You know, and then when you stop your comedy routine, you have to find a way to kind of be mindful and relax and come down, right? That's and hopefully without drink, medica- it, and hopefully well, without, without medication. That's often times where the drinking yeah. comes in. Yes, indeed. But, but the idea is that <clears throat> you can deal with cortisol acutely. You just can't deal with it chronically. And if you have cortisol rolling through your body and your brain uh, chronically, there's a lot of bad things. You, your children are now teenagers, is that right? Yeah. So now we can we can judge we can we can just look <laughs> at the proof of the pudding, and because uh, you know oftentimes you know you therapists and 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 people in, the, in that field their children are a complete mess, and we've seen this and we 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 we've observed this in the in the literature. Um, <laughs> well, I like to I like to say my kids are great kids, but so uh, and now. you know you have for such, now. I will say this for about now. you. Sometimes people are great coaches, but terrible players is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. The, they and, they know and, exactly and, what to do. They just don't do it. Yeah. Um, but you have a very soothing voice. You know, you you would be, uh, I mean, just listening to you, I'm like, oh, well, you know, she seems quite soothing. She's an awesome mom. She, so you, would see, you, would, you would think so, you know. So, Neil, what, what <laughs> lessons did you learn? Like, if you, were to have a, if you were to have kids now, what things happened in, in your parenting or your, your rearing that you say, I'm never doing well, that I to think my kids? You gotta using keep the word them, rearing to get a cheap laugh? You gotta keep the numbers down. Keep we were doing down. too many numbers. We were doing too many. High there were volume. Too, <laughs> the volume was too high. Uh, I'd say to keep the numbers down. I also, to your point about letting kids, uh, like the Dr. Spock thing of crying it out and all that stuff, like, what was the case study for someone who wasn't allowed who got to sleep in his parents bed too much or hurt you know what i mean like what was their what was their what wait what now, now before you, you just i know you should you preface every sentence with so which is really in vogue now so i just don't want to let you be aware okay of that. <laughs> 
So now you're ruining I, it for I, her in I, case I, she was going. No, no I'm I, just saying, you know how every now now everybody, when you ask me a question, they go, okay, so yeah, I that's know. a new thing. It's yeah. a space filler, I guess. It's a space filler, but it's yeah. in vogue now. It you is. Know? It's, it's, uh, I didn't know it's, I was it's in like, vogue. And it's very polite to point that <laughs> out. I'd like to know what well, I think it's interesting. Dan is proving. No, you don't think it's interesting. In you're trying to, you're trying to nag her. Go ahead. I'm not nagging anyway. I think it's an interesting thing, and it, I, I have to say when I hear it, it's like, uh, it, it's, uh, uh, you know. Anyway, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> so. um, well, I, I, I wanted to first address what you had brought up earlier, which is children who sleep in their parents' bed. So, um, oh, there it is. Um, you know, it's... A lot of people saying and what as the, well. What the research shows... <laughs> it's in vogue now. The research shows that nighttime security is even more important for children's emotional security than daytime security. Mm. So I just put out a YouTube video, which if you're interested, you could watch about why letting... That baby- is a, a video sharing site, youtube.com. Yeah, yeah. Oh, which um, basically letting babies cry it out is actually very damaging to their brains. Um, and so, you know particularly at too early an age. Uh-huh. There's a difference between distress and frustration. So we want to incrementally introduce children to frustration because incrementally frustration. So there's frustration in being a baby anyway. I mean, if you're hungry, your mother doesn't always pick you up immediately. You have to wait sometimes for a few minutes. If you're wet, you have to wait or you know, your mother isn't always immediately available to you. So that incremental frustration is the beginning of separation. So we say really attachment happens from the beginning, but so does separation because in every moment a baby has to wait, there's incremental frustration. That's not distress. Distress is really, so first babies start um, by being frustrated and making a little sound. Maybe it's, and then they may cry if nobody picks them up. Uh, And then they may cry louder. And then they may scream out of rage. And then they go silent. They give up. Right. They give up. And we don't want their brains to give up. Nor do we want to build what we call the father of attachment, said John Bowlby, said... You know, um, John Bowlby, who's the father of attachment. Yeah, he's 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 gone now, Um, but brilliant. And he said, we build a scaffolding for our children. Basically, that scaffolding from the very beginning in attachment is what our children will expect from relationships and from the world going forward. And if that scaffolding is one in which they expect um, that they form expectations that the world is a is a place that meets their needs, and people when they're in distress pick them up. Um, that is the development, that's the foundation of emotional security. But if you build a, a scaffolding in which um, no one picks you up when you're in distress and you're forced to scream and then go silent, that is then the scaffolding for that child in terms but of relationships. that's the scaffolding for the last 40 years of America. Right, and that, it is. And it's well, that's And that's why we've seen an increase in mental illness because what we see is dissociative behavior because what you do defensively when you're a baby is you go silent. That's dissociation. So what's yeah. dissociation? Addiction is dissociation. Alcoholism, drug, drug use, eating disorders, uh, tubing out. These are these are dissociations. And everybody dissociates a What's little. What's tubing out? I don't know what that means. Meaning, meaning watching TV oh, or, watching or, YouTube or getting into technology in an mm-hmm. obsessive way. It's it's basically a dissociation. So so what babies do when they are frustrated or understimulated or overstimulated is they'll take little breaks. And if you watch babies, if you watch your own babies or other people's babies or babies in the park, they take little breaks. They'll, you know, what babies don't have words yet. So the breaks that they take is they'll look away from the mother temporarily. And mm-hmm. that's a little bit of a 
defensive dissociation. And that's normal. But then they look back at the mother and they reconnect. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening all day long with the mother who is there primarily. Mm -hmm. Um, But what these babies who are forced to cry it out do is that they get into a more chronic dissociative state. And that's really the foundation of the mental illness, all kinds of pathology. I want to point out something because what I found to be one of the most, especially reassuring for someone like me who cannot take three years off of work um, is when you talk about just being present. And I think this is where technology comes into where Noam is saying that, you know, just being physically there is not, and to your point as Mm -hmm. well, is not really meeting the expectation or the need. And so um, if you could just talk a little bit about kind of, you know, turning off your phone and just, you know, how that um, so, so first I want to say you can be a, it really isn't a book about stay-at-home moms versus working moms because you can be a stay-at-home mom and be physically there but be emotionally checked out. So really, um, you know, people always ask me, what about quality time? And I say, well, the, the problem with quality time is it assumes that you don't need quantity time. The truth is you need both as much as possible. But if you're a working mom, there are things you can do um, when you return, before you leave, even the way you think about your work. Um, how you perceive of it, whether in that period of time that you're raising very young children, you're being aspirational about your work or you're being more aspirational about raising your child. And then maybe the work in those years isn't something you're aspirational about, but you're doing, you know, doing and the repairing part you talk about is yeah. also really yeah. key. So basically, if you're a working mom, removing distractions. So there's lots of really good advice in the book, you know, putting your computer, your your iPad, your, your phones in a basket at the door and not picking it up until your children are asleep. Um, also important for adult to adult relationships. I mean, you know, how many times have you gone to a restaurant and seen adults like on their phones yeah. instead of talking to one another? So we really lost connection. Our radio shows. Um, yeah, we've lost connection. <laughs> basically. Yeah. Um, so removing. I, dis- re- I was inspired, guys. Sorry, I wrote a note <laughs> down. Ugh. What What exactly is your work again, Kristen? I I, I forgot. Um, I work I, in research I administration at NYU School of Medicine. So I'm actually lucky in the fact that I have, and one of the reasons I've stayed in this job um, is that I have very flexible hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I will be one of the lucky ones who can kind of do what you advocate in terms of working a couple of hours, a couple of days a week instead of doing, you know, I, I can adjust my schedule. Yeah. What um, about the modern... Uh, was your mom home, Dan? She was. Your, yeah, your, she mom, was. your mom was home. Mm-hmm. My mom worked. Your mom worked. And that, that was, I actually wanted to just touch on the daycare aspect because I'm curious how this, we're talking a lot about emotional and kind of right brain stuff. How does... Is there any research or have you looked at how this manifests cognitively in terms of, um, you know, how smart kids are or how, because I come from a daycare, I mean, I was in daycare from six months and so were my two younger sisters. And my sister um, has three children who are all, and she just moved recently to Connecticut, suburbs of Which Connecticut. Which sister was this again? Lauren. Oh, yeah. And um, she's also a, a preschool teacher and she has a master's in education and she's aware of a lot of developmental <laughs> stuff. Sorry. It's relevant. <laughs> who's, who's, who's but snoring? the yeah, point that, is... No? And her mom's a doctor. <laughs> but the yeah. point is that um, she noticed that in her kids being in school, they're quote unquote way beyond. All the other kids seem behind. 
Um, and a lot of them were, you know, in Connecticut where she is, a lot of stay-at-home moms, and probably these kids didn't enter She's saying, do you get until... dumb? Is there, any cog- is there any intellectual advantage to being out in daycare? I know you say the soci- socialization really can't happen for kids before the, after before they're two. But I think it's but in the genes, man. I'm These kids curious. are they're, they're smart or they're dumb. But anyway, we'll so, let the gnomes kids are also very smart and they didn't go to take care. So, so 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 think about the idea that um, social emotional development should always come before cognitive development. Meaning, think of it as your socks before your shoes. You wouldn't put your shoes on before your socks. My son does that, but go ahead. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and so the reason that progressive education and, um, you know, really where education has gone to um, is a more experiential and progressive place is because they believe that social emotional development has to come first. And that means emotional security. That means emotional regulation. That means buffering from stress. And that sometimes what happens to children is they develop defensive independence. So if you force a child to adapt to a situation where they are forced to be self-sufficient too early, they will adapt. But what happens is they form pathological defenses, which are not healthy defenses. Defensive independence is not organic independence. So, um, and what that what that may do is it can produce left brain development, meaning cognitive development, early on. But that's fragile. And what we're seeing is a lot of children who seem very smart academically and cognitively breaking down. Because they don't have the emotional substance and the emotional security to I'm deal with frustration. <laughs> um, and so really, if you think about it as socks before shoes, mm-hmm. you always want to put your socks on first. Yeah. There's plenty of time to learn cognitive Socks skills. before shoes was the original title of Bing. Yeah, <laughs> it was. We had many titles. I, I, and look, that's actually Dan's mom title. was home and look what happened. Well, I, I was this about to say. I have to well, say. Yeah, He's course, just so like this, a perfect I know that, I knew, I'm sorry, but I know that's where it was going. I just want to make the point. You correct me. Like, listen, everything is probability. You're talking about curves. There, there are always outliers. You have people who have everything that, that they shouldn't have and they turn out to be great and well-adjusted Don't and happy. Don't take them on your book and, tour. And, and you guys are actually outliers of exactly the opposite. You had none of the things she's recommending and you and all your sisters are like the most well-adjusted happy people ever. Well, let's not go Dan too far. Dan had a nurturing mom, <laughs> and he's a total basket case. Uh, I don't know how great uh, the, the Montella girls are psychologically, considering uh, one of them actually had a crush on me. You you manifested that in your psychology. That's version. part of your. That's part yes, of your problem. Yes, that's part of your problem. Now, now what about? Now, done. Wanna, yeah, Let me ask you. What, I'll ask then you. Okay, ask. okay. What about birth orders? How much? How much stock do you put in birth orders? Like the, the oldest. You know what it means. Go ahead. I mean, Socks before shoes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there's some evidence that birth order impacts children, but really it's, um, you know, obviously it's easier for a mother with one child, an only child, which is a thing in New York, you know, in particular in New York, because it is so expensive here. I was um, to, to give a child um, a lot of attention and emotional as well as physical presence. And as soon as you have another child, you have to, sh- that child can't share your presence because you can't share a person. It's not like King Solomon where you split the baby in half or you split the mother in half. They have to wait. They have to take turns. So automatically it implies frustration tolerance. They have to learn to deal with frustration and waiting. And in your case, nine kids, boy, there was a lot of frustration. I'll tell you about birth order. I'll I'll tell you about birth order. Studies show that uh, artists, people in the creative arts, are more likely to be the youngest child. And my anecdotal uh, uh, my anecdotal experience suggests that this is true. Now, Neil, you're the youngest child. I am. Uh, but then again, uh, you also have a brother in the business who's not yep. the youngest child. I'm the youngest child, and I think you'll find uh, that there's a disproportionate amount of youngest children. My my uh, guess for that is, the reason I think that's true is because we want attention 
we were not taken seriously as kids. We were just the little ones, and nobody paid attention to us. And now, damn it, everyone's going to pay attention to my cousin Sheila joke, and um, or what have you. And um, that's my theory as to birth order. Neil, does that does that, does that job with your experience? Uh, not the cousin Sheila part. <laughs> Uh, no, I think that, yeah, but then, like, Chris Rock's one of the older kids in his family. Well, and I think that, uh, no, I'm not saying but, everybody, yeah, I think but I Chappelle's think. Chappelle's is, is I the think, youngest of three. I think that proportionally, uh, disproportionately, the youngest child is more likely to be certainly a comic. I, I And I haven't done a study, but just anecdotally, I think. Yeah. That's what I've There's noticed. something, too, about, like, I, whenever I'm, I've also been arguing with adults since I was five. And angry adults. Well, I mean, if you're first, you get a lot of attention. If you're last, yeah. you get a lot of yeah. attention. You get a lot of attention, and, and, but and not necessarily get all those surrogate the, parents. The kids in the middle it's probably struggle yeah, we, we the get, most. We get a lot of attention as the youngest children, but what we don't get is respect, goddammit, because we're the youngest. <laughs> He's and, right. And, and, and so I think that, um, that that might play into it. Now, the, the airline pilots are more likely to be the oldest child. Well, you're both, Dan. I'm not so. an airline pilot. Well, I, do have, you're a pilot. I do have a pilot's license that ha- I haven't yeah. used it in quite some time. But ask Neil. You know, Neil uh, is th- now. If you if you hang around comics, you'll you'll notice uh, that many of us are in our 40s and don't have children. A disproportionately high number of us are in our 40s and don't have children. I am in my 40s and don't have children. Don't really intend to, and We're probably all, will we not support you in that, Dan. Well, <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, uh, Neil. I, I don't, Proverbially, I don't know if you're in your. I don't want to have children myself. It's never occurred to me. Mm-hmm. Doesn't look like fun. But it may be because I didn't feel a connection with my father or really my mother. My mother was there, but I've always said talking to my mother's like it's like there's plexiglass between us. Like there's not an emotional connection. She claims that when I was a little, we were kicked it like all day. Well, there were eight children between you and your mother, so that's that's a lot of that's a lot of plexiglass. Yeah. So, but you know. I think the idea is that you don't have to have children to be happy in life. And I think we have to give people permission not to have children and say, you know, just like feminism said to women, you're a traitor to feminism if you don't work. Um, You know, in a way, then society went to a place where we said, if you don't have children, you can't be part of society. No, Rome actually believes that that children are the key to happiness. Well, not for everyone. This this is what I believe. I don't know, what, but I feel like, I've used this analogy before. When you take a dog and you throw him in a swimming pool, he immediately begins to dog paddle. Now, the dog has no idea what dog pay. He doesn't even know this response. And if he never was thrown in the water, his brain would never activate all those circuits to start swimming. Mm -hmm. I think to some extent this is what parenting is. When you have a child, all of a sudden things get activated in your brain. You start dog paddling, as it were. And that's very gratifying. And if you had never had the child, you would have never known it was in you, would have never experienced those emotions which are sitting dormant and will die with that's, you. That's uh, a uh, you know. comedian f- friend told me the exact same thing. He said it's 40% of your brain you didn't know was yeah, there. Yeah. And sometimes you'd say sometimes the doors and windows um, to a happy connection to your mother and father get opened and it's a transformative experience for a mother or a father. And sometimes the windows and doors that get opened, and that's really the basis of postpartum depression, is that sometimes the windows and doors that get opened are actually a very unhappy connection to your childhood. I experienced both. That you've repressed. And so fathers Is that the diagnosis of of 
uh, mm-hmm. postpartum? Is that what it is? Yeah. So basically having a baby is kind of a psychotic experience. Um, you know, this, this living creature is coming out of your body. And women either are transformed because the windows and doors that are opening to the past are memories and sense mm-hmm. memories of a happy and loving and intimate connection. Oh, that's really interesting. But what can also happen is you can have a window and door open that is a horrifying, neglected, like a abandoned, things. abusive experience. The world, the, the, the upside uh, down. Do you watch Stranger Things? Yeah, I yeah, do. See, yeah. Or, or just, you know, or a distracted or depressed mother. You know, mothers who are depressed and distracted, they're not bad people. They're just, they're suffering too. And, you know, we do we do no good for society by not really addressing postpartum depression and telling women it's OK. It's OK to be bored. I mean, we really need to address it, not just sort of um, push it aside and say it's OK and normal. It's not. I, I, I've found that, you know, you have children and, and you, it, you think all the time about when you were a child, when you had children. I mm-hmm. find that both I am at times now uh, forgiving my parents for things that I didn't understand at the same time. Also resenting certain things that I didn't realize I ought to resent. Like, you know, they could have they could have done this for me. Like, you know, I, I accepted it at the time, but now I'm a dad and I do it and they, they should have done that. So it's a very interesting reevaluation of your past as you're looking at it. And your does child. it end up being a wash, more or less? No, no, but it, it doesn't it doesn't end up well. You know what it, I mean? It, yeah, like I'm, the, I'm trying, you, I'm trying you to basically it's the same amount of resentment or blame that you have, but just for different things. No, I think that in the end, I actually uh, am, am feel warmer towards my father, if that were possible, after being a dad. I, I think I had a really good dad, and he was very loving to me, and a lot of physical affection, and he was there for me. But there were certain things that I hadn't thought of before that I began to reevaluate. Uh, uh, thing. Now, my mom, my mom left me when I was pretty young, and I didn't see her much. I see her now. She's a good grandma. And... um for Even her. that had a little resentment. It put a little English on good grandma. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and a little that, something on there. And that's a tougher one for me. I don't yeah. hope she doesn't listen. Because I'm like, how could she do that? Like, yeah. yeah. But I think it's what I alluded to before, that at some point you see less and less, and then the, the attachment just wanes. And it's not because it makes her a bad person. It's just human, you know? Yeah. But now maybe she should have had the self-discipline to to fight that waning that she felt. And she didn't. But whatever, you know, I, all in all, I had a pretty good upbringing. I think what you said is really true, which is there is no intimacy without time spent. And yeah. that really is the Did bottom line. Yeah, oh, that you yeah. can't be intimate well. without time spent. Well, not as concisely. Adult, whether it's an adult to adult relationship or an adult to child relationship. And so, you know, children need you when they need you. Mm-hmm. Not on your time, but on their time. And so if you're not there when they need you, and I'm writing a book now about teenagers, which is the next critical period of brain development, which is 9 to 29 is adolescence. It actually starts earlier than we thought and ends later. And that's another critical period of brain development where parents have another opportunity to make a difference in their children's social emotional brain. Uh, so if you didn't get to the first period or now you you're had saying to miss it. socks first was that? That reminds me of a David Tell joke where he, he's like writing notes to himself just to remember things, and it's like pants down, then shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got to wrap it up. I want to tell you that I think that uh, 30, 40 years from now, the stuff that you're talking about now is going to be uh, accepted. Th- accepted and and be critically accepted as critically important. I think it's the whole ball of wax to everything. I really yeah. do. Life has limitations. 
Life has limitations. And just accept them and and embrace them. Right. I I always say you can get everything you want in life, just not in the order you think you're going to get them or the order you want them. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, just you can't have it all. You can have a lot of stuff, but not all at the same time. And make the most of what you have and the time of that you have. And And not to be afraid when life is out of order, as you Mm -hmm. say. And I think that's a really important component of the book, too, is that, you know, you... There's so much fear of living a nonlinear life. And as a comedian, you're certainly not living a a linear life. Mm -mm. But most people aspire to living linear lives. And that means linear careers and linear relationships. And I live a life on the imaginary number plane. That's not a bad thing. <laughs> uh, I like the word imaginary. It's important for right brain development. But um, but yeah, so the idea that, you know, taking time off or doing it differently than you thought you would do it or, you know, um, getting off the kind of the, the, the track that you're I on. have to ask you one really more, yeah. really important question for parents. Yeah. I said I wouldn't do this, but over time, my son ends up watching more and more superhero stuff with violence, you know? And the violence isn't like when we were kids when it was really obviously fake. Like, he can't comprehend this. Is He says he knows it's not real. What do you think? Do you think that's going to be consequential to him? So, really, you just said it. You actually know the answer, that the more imaginary and not real it feels, the more okay like it Yosemite is. Like Yosemite Sam getting hit with an anvil. Yeah. Like yeah. I mean, I've it's t- not I've as, as, as quite as uh, damaging. I've even taken him to YouTube videos where they kind of demonstrate how CGI works just to try to get him to wrap his head around the fact that this is not real. And he seems to get it. He loves it so much, you know. I don't. I, it's really hard not to let and all his friends get to watch it. But I worry about it. I don't know. Well, again, a you good want, a good you movie wanna... for kids: Faces of Death. <laughs> <laughs> you you want to be careful with violence if too early and too much. But on the other hand, um, children look to superheroes to kind of express some of their own aggression. So they express it vicariously through the superheroes and. It's why they dress up as, you know, Superman. And, you know, and again, in the old days, it wasn't um, very realistic. So in a way, that protected us. Um, and now, with all the videos and things, you know, we have to be careful of virtual reality. Because- there's, there's also something to be said for learn. learn re- so he's into superheroes. He's into violence. Go out and do some violence and see what happens. He'll do something violent to a guy bigger than him, and he'll get him. He'll get beat up, and I bet he'll be less obsessed with violence. Or if, or sleep with your parents until you're 13. Well, See how that does for you it, in it, in at school. Okay, you know what I mean? Like, fair you, enough. But there's two ways to not be violent. One way is to just not feel the violence. Yeah. And another way is to feel the violence, but learn you have to try to keep it inside yeah. because you get your ass kicked. I want him to be the former, you know, he might get his ass kicked, but I don't want him to live with these urges his whole life. And right. Just, you know, but I don't think I don't think that's a learned it, urge. It's personally. actually yeah. what's more impactful on children in terms of their regulation of aggression is their interaction with their fathers and their mothers, but really with their fathers. So if their fathers can regulate their own emotions are good at if their fathers don't have terrible tempers, if mm-hmm. they know how to regulate their own anger um, and they show the child how it's done. That's how children learn. They learn from watching their fathers yeah. regulate their aggression. Well, I gotta say that Noam regulates with the best of them. I've never <laughs> seen him flip out 
Now, uh, of course, I'm not around you 24-7, but I just have not seen okay, it. Okay, but that's because I really was yelled at by my father as a child, and it was traumatic. Yeah. And I will not yell at my kids like that. And in, I just, just in general, you, you picked a woman. Unless your kids bring up, like, labor unions or something like that. <laughs> and interestingly, you picked a woman who wants to be home with her children when your mother wasn't there. So, I told you I, I mean, gave her you, no choice. You, but you did, a lot of, you did a lot of repairing in your own life. But so, yeah. even yeah. forget about yelling at your kids. I don't see you flipping out. In general, like sometimes yes, he no, has. not what are you really in the workplace. About? God, I never heard that. Why the fuck it? I never are you out that. of your mind? I, I, you, Where no, are Chris, you? The truth is, I I don't anymore. I I did years okay, ago. Okay, fine. I, maybe I really don't recent, more recent. No, well, but I have years. you know in the yeah. past ten years when I got to know Noam, so maybe yeah, I didn't yeah. see that prior. It's when I started talking to Noam was has been the past ten years. But with the children, but maybe having children, maybe sometimes Noam will say, you know, what he'll do. He'll go. say, all right, I'm really angry right now. You know, he'll say to me. Dan, I'm getting really angry right now. But maybe that's but having I, children made him. But I don't see the manifestation more. Well, that could be. And, I and, find and, he, you act, you just act more Jewish. <laughs> if, if that were possible, yeah, you get Jewier. <laughs> went, went through frustration. That's Is that in the book? Jew- Do you cover the Jewiness in the book? Actually, actually I'm Jewy too, so oh, I can tell you, it. there's a lot of Jewy All stuff. Right. Some of it got cut out, but there's quite uh, still quite a bit. Well, so, the, I'll, I'll end it on a Jewy thing. I'll that, tell end you it on a Jewy that thing. in the right. Torah, there's something called Yisrael Hava, which means the sacred obligation that we have to care for our children. You don't have to have children to have a good life. In fact, I encourage people not to have children if they're ambivalent and they don't want to go and work through that ambivalence with someone, a professional. Um, But if you do choose to have children, then you have a sacred obligation to care for them and meet their needs first. So that's straight from the Torah. Uh, That's a smart one. Okay, well, listen, I'm so happy you came here. You know, Thank this, you is, for having this is such me. a subject close to my heart and to Chris's heart, and it ought to be to most people's heart. And Neil, thank you. You want to? You want to? You have a, a website or a Twitter account or something? I, that... I do. Um, it's www.comissar.com, and the book is available in bookstores and on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Well, and nobody yes, goes I tweet to bookstores. And please follow anymore. me on Twitter. By the way, do you have an audio book? Because you have such a nice speaking voice. I do. Voice. I do. You, I have an it? audio book. They they don't let the authors generally read, but they found oh. someone that I got to pick. Who sounds Dove Davidoff read his more book. like more like me than not. Yeah, Tracy Morgan read his too. But oh did, did Tracy Morgan read? Yes. Oh uh, yeah, but Tracy Morgan. You got. I mean, you know, <laughs> you got to have that. I guess if you're a performer, it, they ask you to read your That's own right. book. But That's she's not a performer, but she does have a very good voice. Thank you. Absolutely, yeah, without question. Very good. Neil, you want you want to uh, um, Twitter? Neil Brennan. Neil Brennan. I mean, it's a, you know, people know me. He's so famous, you don't even need to. <laughs> I mean, it's with that. very famous. Do you know the Chappelle Show? Have you? Were you a fan back? Well, that was back I, in the I early two thousands. You would actually like famous. Yeah. Mostly, the Chappelle Show was really just two people, Neil and Dave, and they did a hundred percent. And of I don't know who was most involved with the uh, Prince basketball sketch, but I, I assume Neil had a hand in that. Yeah, directed. That was certainly uh, one of the uh, the highlights. And of what about Black Bush? Show. I mean, People yeah, that send was. Me that all oh, the time. that one. That I gotta say, that was mostly Dave. I don't like to get. We. I generally don't split credit up like that. But when it's all, when it's so much him, he just always wanted to do a reenactment of white president. Well, they're like Lennon and McCartney, you know. I, I mean, was say, who wrote Hey Jude? <laughs> they always share the credit, but it's usually one or the other that took the lead. I just yeah. made that. I don't know if that's true. Well, okay. Thank you very much, everybody. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night. Thank you.